from the CPRI Knowledge Hub and CPRIHub.org. This is Research Minutes, a weekly look at new and important research in education. Today we're focusing on inequality and a new report that examines the long odds faced by disadvantaged students from kindergarten, through college, and into the workforce. A less talented kid from an affluent family has more than twice the chance of ending up in a good job than a highly talented kid from a low SES family, which is pretty stunning. We welcome Anthony Carnavali, director of the Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce, whose new study paints a stark picture of status, race, and lasting achievement gaps in the U.S. That has become something of a crisis to the extent that pretty much upward mobility in America has slowed down dramatically since the 90s. These numbers have started to move downward, and it's almost exclusively due to differences in education. Carnavali joins CPRI Knowledge Hub Managing Editor Keith Hugh-Miller to discuss his findings, their implications, and some potential ways forward. Because what we have here is a national problem and we need a national solution. That is, we've been reforming K-12 education since 1983 in the Nation at Risk report. The problem is still very substantial, so we need to step up our game. That's right now on Research Minutes. Hi, I'm Keith Hugh-Miller, Managing Editor here with the CPRI Knowledge Hub. Today, I'm very happy to be joined by Anthony Carnavali, Research Professor and Director of the Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Carnavali. My pleasure. Thank you for asking me. So today, we're going to be discussing your center's new report. It's titled Born to Win, Schooled to Lose, Why Equally Talented Students Don't Get Equal Chances to Be All They Can Be. It's an eye-opening analysis of student and family data ranging from kindergarten through college completion and into the workforce. So the major takeaway seems to be pretty simple. The most talented youth from disadvantaged beginnings don't do as well as even the least talented youth who come from advantage. Is that an accurate description? That's correct. That is probably the most surprising finding. It is important because in the end, what it says is that the usual smug presumption on most people's parts, which is that uh, what schools do is they reveal talent. They don't really create it so that the kids who do well through grade school take tests and do well, and then they go to high school, take the SAT or the ACT, and they go to the best colleges, and then they get the best jobs, and that's all just fine, the best of all possible worlds, because it's fair that in the end, the Smart people get the good college degrees and the good jobs and make the most money, and the people who are not smart simply don't make it, and so it's a fair system. Problem, first of all, is that we know that the people who don't make it are disproportionately black and uh, Latino and lower income. So uh, in the end, what you end up arguing, if you believe in the system, is that people who are black or Latino or lower income don't make it because they don't have the talent. And this study is one that essentially shows that that's absolutely not true. And it's likely not not news to many people that advantaged students have, well, more advantages when it comes to educational attainment and future success. But the range of the findings in this report and the severity of some of those disparities are, are pretty startling. 
So before we jump into the report, can we just start with a little bit of an overview of the study itself? What data did you use and what do we mean when we're talking about advantage versus disadvantage? We use data that has been a long time in the making. It's the so-called Eccles data, which essentially is data that is paid for over a very long time by the U.S. Department of Education that follows young people from kindergarten all the way through college. And then in this last cohort, it aged into the workplace. So you could literally track kids from kindergarten all the way through their first or second job. And that's what was unique about that. Until that data was available, you really couldn't do this in a longitudinal format, that is, in a pipeline format, to follow students. So we had to wait years before we could prove this. It would have been a lot more convenient if this was around years ago when we had the great debate with Hernstein and Murray, who claimed uh, in various uh, work that they did that essentially the brightest kids are the ones who get the best jobs in the end, and that's just fair. What this shows is that it's not fair. Sure. And uh, in the report, you identify advantage versus disadvantage in a unique way, specifically using socioeconomic status. Could you just maybe explain for our listeners so, so we know what we're talking about when we're looking at those two ends of the spectrum? There is a very ready definition of people's economic and social standing, which is their family income. But we find, and other social scientists as well, prefer to use more than family income as a variable to designate people from different classes. And that is, we also use parental education. That is, how much education your parents had, which is a real indicator of class. You can be very rich, but have made money without getting much education. But in the end, it's much more difficult to pass that earnings capability onto your children, we know from other data, if you don't have education yourself. And then we also look at the occupations of the parents as to whether or not there are high status occupations that tend to require more education and have more status in the workforce. So for instance, you might have parents who are both school teachers. They don't make a ton of money, but in the American workforce, they have high status because they're professionals, and we know that professional status is a huge influence on whether or not kids will then get education themselves. So the notion of socioeconomic status mixes what you might think of as social variables with economic variables, and that is a much better predictor of intergenerational behavior than using uh, income, family income all by itself. And in terms of your actual analysis, it looks like your team didn't have to track very far to find evidence of the disparities that you're, you're talking about. It seems they already exist in kindergarten. Yeah. Young people start out in predictable ways by race and class in kindergarten. Minorities, especially African-Americans and Latinos, start out behind. So do working class and lower income whites. That evidence, which is something that is very well known because that data is relatively easy to get nowadays and has produced a lot of research, which has resulted in growing support for early childhood education, universally available early childhood education, which we know in the end from work by other economists other than us, has very high returns because if you give somebody a boost 
when they're five years old, the effect of that will carry over all the way through into adulthood. So relative to spending money at the end of the pipeline, that is when kids are in high school, for example, spending early has very high returns. And you also found that test scores in kindergarten don't seem to predict future success nearly as much as uh, socioeconomic status. In fact, students with low test scores who come from the highest socioeconomic quartile have a much greater chance of future success than students with low test scores who happen to come from families with a lower SES. Yeah, a less talented kid from an affluent family has more than twice the chance of ending up in a good job, making all the way through the school system, through college, and into a good job than a highly talented kid from a low SES family, uh, which is pretty stunning. I frankly didn't think that that statistic would prove true because it's so extreme. We expected there to be advantages, but for the advantages to allow children from relatively affluent families with low school performance to better than kids with high school performance, but from low-income families, that was pretty striking. I could imagine. And those disparities seem to stay. You, you mentioned in your report that um, the students from those lower uh, quartiles, they, they fall behind and they stay behind. The process we see throughout, one of the things that I think is a very positive finding, is that everybody stumbles pretty much. Uh, if you're from an affluent family, there's less chance of your stumbling. But generally, a lot of young people stumble as they go through school. What really makes the difference is that when the children from more affluent families stumble, they get back up again. They have the social and other kinds of supports that help them recover from their stumbles. In the case of the kids who come from lower SES families, uh, they stumble and don't recover nearly as much. So there's a steady loss of those kids all the way through the, that is the lower income kids, lower SES kids, all the way through the 10th grade. When all this starts to stabilize, that is, if you get to the 10th grade, you've nearly made it. And you just touched on this a little bit, but I, I think our listeners might be wondering what could possibly explain these kind of disparities. Is it simply a matter, as you said, of, of access to maybe tutors or other resources, having access to, to money that less advan- advantaged families just can't access? Well, we know from social science research since the 1960s that one of the more difficult facts in trying to leverage mobility for young, less advantaged, low SES students, is that disadvantage is derives from multiple interacting kinds of conditions, all the way from stereotyping, that is, um, the rest of the world looking at you as a certain type of person who doesn't succeed, especially if you're black or Latino or poor, all the way through government policies, through tutoring uh, your home environment, neighborhood, quality of your schooling. There really is an, you know, an endless source of disadvantage, and it tends to be something that comes from multiple causes. It is also true, because that research has been done, that advantage comes from multiple causes. There is no little green pill that you can take to fix all this. It's a complicated uh, environmental set of conditions, and you have to change 
a lot of the variables from your parents' ability to work and take time with you to their own education, to the neighborhood you're in, to the school you go to, to the friends you have and their expectations, which were bound to be similar to yours, uh, and so on, so that it is a complex set of uh, very difficult combinations of factors in both advantage and disadvantage. But as we see in this study, the one consistent asset that exists throughout this whole process and the one to which virtually all young American kids as they grow up have access to is the school, Uh, which is why in the end we put so much of a burden on the school because we're not about to change the community, the family, the parents' job or education. Uh, Although we could, uh, we could do a great deal more. That is, if you're from a family where you have a working mother and you're low-income that will hurt you. If you come from a family where you have a working mother and you're high income, that will help you. So there are lots of variables involved in shaping someone as they age. In addition to socioeconomic factors, you also looked at race, discovering in particular that these disparities are even more severe between black or Latino students and white or Asian students. Can you take us through those findings? Yes, it is not unexpected that what we found was that race makes things worse. That is, there's a common view that this research and other research doesn't really support, that it's really all about class, that it's about your family income, socioeconomic status, and that race is uh, not really a factor. It's about your class. In the end, what this study shows, and others have as well, is that race is a factor unto itself. That is, it does, in fact, make things worse. Both sets of factors matter. That is, your social class and what comes with it, but also your race and what comes with it. So the hope that we can set race aside, at least in analytic terms, it just really doesn't pan out. Do you think that the findings in this report are especially relevant given the rising levels of economic inequality we've seen and continue to see here in the U.S.? Yes. Uh, We live in a new world. The uh, younger generations are the first to do it, millennials, and that is the world I came from, which let's say in the 1970s when I was going through grade school and high school, you could, in fact, uh, in those days, you could get a good job. 70% of the good jobs out there required only high school or less. Only 30% of the good jobs, which in modern terminology pay about 55 grand at a minimum, were available uh, to people who had college. And most people didn't go to college, didn't need to go to college. The truth is the majority of good jobs in the economy, especially the blue-collar economy, went to people with high school or less. So it's a different world that the numbers have almost flipped, not quite. But now it's true that well over 60% of the good jobs go to people with at least some college education. Since the early 80s, this has been happening for economic reasons and technology change. But what's happened now is that more and more in your outcome in life, especially your material outcome and your social standing, depends on your education. And in fact, since 1983, when these effects began to show up, It's also the case that uh, over that period of time, there has been an increasing effect of technology on skill requirements. And since that time, if you look at 
the increase in earnings inequality in America, which spiked in 1983 and has continued to grow ever since. When you do the economic analysis, you discover that 70% of the increase in earnings inequality since 1983 is due to differences in access to college education with labor market value. That is, not all college education will make you a ton more money, but about 80% of it will. Looking at the findings in your report, I guess the, the next question for a lot of us is, what can we do about it? In your opinion, are there any ways forward? Are there, there steps we, we could take at the policy level or even the school level to try and narrow these gaps or level the playing field a little bit? There are lots of things we need to do and don't do. It's not brain surgery. We have to essentially give people who aren't middle class in America uh, the same kinds of supports that are given to people who are. And at the moment, that has become something of a crisis to the extent that pretty much upward mobility in America has slowed down dramatically since the 90s. These numbers have started to move downward, and it's almost exclusively due to differences in education. So that we do know what to do. The question is, will we do it? We had very aggressive interventions in K-12 education beginning in 1983 with the nation at risk when we as a society essentially agreed that we were going to give every American kid a solid general education, academic education through high school. That was hot for a while. It sort of peaked in the Bush administration uh, with Margaret Spellings and George Bush who pushed through No Child Left Behind. We, for whatever reason, pretty much moved away from that beginning in the Obama administration and essentially gave uh, education reform back to the states because it became too hot to handle at the federal level. So we've sort of dropped that ball, but we have picked up since then more and more political interest in higher ed because politicians know that supporting higher education brings votes, changes votes. And so everybody's on that now. Uh, everybody wants to give away free college. So in the end, however, if we do that, we're not going to get very far because if everybody gets free college, we're going to create a lot of dropout factories because the K-12 system is not preparing people. And what is even more complicated is that since K-12 uh, has now become a system whose only excuse for existing is to send people to college, that is, there's no more vocational education of any real power in the K-12 system. So we now rely on post-secondary to train people for jobs, which in the end, of course, jobs and the money you make at them is the real source of upward mobility in a capitalist economy. So, and more so in America than, say, in Europe, because in Europe, there's a very big welfare state that gives you your health care, your vacations, uh, gives you a few years to recover from a job loss and so on. So in the U.S., your material standing pretty much depends on your education more than in any other advanced economy in the world. So education has to be a major piece of the answer, but there's more to it than that. I did want to follow up. You had mentioned before about the importance of early childhood education and the awareness that we're seeing from you know, state governments up through the federal level and, and the attention that's being paid there. Do you think that pre-K plays a role here as well? Yes, there is, at least across the social science community, and almost every politician has heard this over and over again, in part because they're finding out from 
people who study these things how important pre-K education is, good quality pre-K education is. Uh, and they're hearing from families, especially from mothers, that we've got to have an early childhood education system if, if women are going to continue to work and if families are going to remain stable uh, with two earners. So there are lots of reasons to be in favor of pre-K, and I suspect that's real competition there in terms of the money for pre-K versus higher ed. Higher ed will move votes among the middle class, and especially in the Democratic Party, which is more and more the party of college-educated Americans. Pre-K covers a lot more people than that. It actually reaches down to a lot of families that are, are very disadvantaged and is less politically compelling for that reason because those families don't vote. Do you think there's there are any opportunities here for future research, either for your center or for others who are working in this area? Yeah, there is. You know, we've raised a question and pointed back to the education system. And I think uh, one of the challenges that come from our work is that it really is a call to educators to step up the pace. That is, we've sort of at the federal level, where I think this has to come from ultimately, because what we have here is a national problem and we need a national solution. But is a message to educators here, and that is we've been reforming K-12 education since 1983 in the Nation at Risk report. The problem is still very substantial. That is the inequality and educational opportunity. So we need to step up our game. My bias is the federal government has to do that. Well, again, this is just an incredibly timely and a really eye-opening report. And the Center on Education and the Workforce also has a, a number of other resources, including video and graphic breakdowns of all the data that you were discussing on the Center's website, which can be found at cew.georgetown.edu. And the report, again, is titled Born to Win, Schooled to Lose, Why Equally Talented Students Don't Get Equal Chances to Be All They Can Be. Dr. Anthony Carnavali, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Yeah, same here. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this week's Research Minutes, presented by the CPRE Knowledge Hub. For more episodes of this podcast, or to subscribe to this series, visit us at cprehub.org. That's cprehub.org. To share thoughts on today's episode, or to suggest future topics, follow us on Twitter at cprehub.org.